serving as an associate. He is currently serving as an associate pastor over at Island ECC. He's been a good friend of Pastor Mike's for a long time and Dan Tubbs as well. So we're excited to welcome him welcome him warmly this morning. Tim Latour is able to share with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for that very, very nice welcome. Um, I have a, I have a stopwatch right here, so I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to run over my time. Mike was very specific about that. I'm <laughs> just kidding. He actually uh, he cares for you guys a whole lot. He sent me a text message about uh, 25 minutes ago saying, "Hey, brother, preach preach really well. I'm praying for you." So uh, even while he's away on vacation, he still can't stop thinking about church. So. Um, again, yeah, thank you so much for having me. My name is Tim Latour. Uh, my wife, Cindy, is back there. She's running around trying to get our kids settled. Our two girls um, go to Christian Alliance International School, so there's a lot of familiar faces here. And they kind of felt instantly at home here, going, there's my teacher, there's my friend, and there's my friend's mom. And, you know, So they ran to the, the room. Our son is a little young. He's having a, a harder time. Uh, and my wife is a, a marriage therapist, marriage and family therapist here. Uh, and we've been in Hong Kong for nine years now, and uh, started over at Island ECC right across the harbor um, nine years ago as a youth director, and Mike Rose came in uh, about eight years ago as a youth director here, and uh, he and Dan Tupps and David Henze and I, and we were all part of a network and became great friends, and we've been friends ever since. So Mike and I have had plenty of meetings at the Starbucks right down the street, and at the Starbucks over on my side, and we flip-flop and go back and forth. Um, but a good, good friend, and I'm really glad that I could, could uh, be here today. Um, so uh, I know you guys have gone through Deuteronomy. You're now in, in Nehemiah, but uh, you, you spent a few weeks in Deuteronomy. And today I wanted to talk about, um, talk about the Shema a little bit from Deuteronomy, but, but looking at it from the New Testament perspective of what Jesus talks about, what he calls the great commandment. Um, as you, you probably remember from your study in Deuteronomy, that the Shema uh, was the, the, a very important prayer, a very important aspect uh, for the Israelites to, to have on their hearts and on their minds uh, and on their, their heads and on their doorposts and this sort of thing. But I just want to kind of recap that really quickly, looking in the Old Testament of what the Shema is, okay? Shema Yisrael is, is here, uh, here, O Israel. In uh, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, it says, Here, O Israel, uh, the Lord God, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. And so you see how important this is, okay? The commands that God has given them. Now Moses um, had just, in Deuteronomy, he had just written about the, the Ten Commandments again. He just reminded the Israelites about the Ten Commandments. He's reminding them about the law that they had just heard, that they had just gained. Uh, and he's saying that these are so important that you need to remember them and you need to impress them on your children, bind them on your hands, your forehead, put them on your doorposts, all these kind of uh, symbols, these kind of ideas so that 
they could remember what God has taught them. Okay? Things to remind them. It's kind of like how we wear a cross around our neck, right? Whenever you wear a cross necklace or you have maybe a WWJD bracelet or something like that, uh, some, some sort of symbol that reminds you about Jesus and the sacrifice that he's done for us. Now, I recently had uh, the great privilege of, of going to Israel um, this, this summer, and I saw the Shema and, and the symbolism and the importance of the Shema in Israel all over the place. Now, Israel is, is a Jewish state, so it's, it's a religious state, okay? Um, it's about 77% Jewish, so therefore, um, what the rules are in Judaism are the rules for the entire state of Israel, right? So things have to be kosher. So one night at a meal, I had some meat, and I had coffee after the meal, and I asked for some milk with my coffee, and they said, you can't have milk for your coffee. And I was going, I can't drink black coffee. I need some cream for my coffee. You know, it was just kind of freaking me out, but that was just kind of the the rule there. Um, but I saw in all of the different stores, all the different shops we went to, they sold these little kind of rectangular um, kind of devices or, or little little uh, bracket sort of things that you would screw to the door frame of your, all the doors. So pretty much every door you walk through in Israel has the Shema on it. So when you walk past this door frame, you're walking past the Shema. Okay? Uh, when we went to the Wailing Wall, we saw men uh, with the Shema bound to their foreheads, a little box that had the Shema inside this box that they would literally tie to their forehead. Uh, they wound it around their arms, their, their, their hands, their wrists, and their arms, and it was just kind of all over them uh, to remind them of this truth, right? Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. So it's an extremely important uh, aspect for, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. This, this Shema was something that was taught to children, right? Impress upon your children. It's one of the first prayers they learned. Uh, they said it in the morning. They say it at night before they go to bed. It's even so far as supposed to be, if you're on your deathbed and you're, and you're dying, it's supposed to be your last words as a Jewish person. It's supposed to be the last thing you say. So we see that this is a very, very important scripture uh, for the Jewish people, for the Israelites. And so we read then again in Mark 12... Okay, we see in the New Testament, Jesus is teaching, okay? And, and he's out among the people, and, and it says in Mark 12, verse 28 through 31, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard, him, uh, heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Okay, so Jesus is telling them, again, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he kind of adds a little amendment. Love your neighbor as yourself, which we see from Leviticus. Okay? So he's saying this sums up everything, right? If you love the Lord your God with everything that you have, 
And if you love your neighbor as yourself, that pretty much covers everything, right? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't steal from them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't murder them. You won't hurt them. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there won't be any other gods in your life. So you've surrendered everything to God and you, you love others as yourself. So we see that this, this Shema that is so important to the Israelites, even in the Old Testament, has now been brought into the New Testament for Christians. It's still important for us. And it's still a good reminder. And we can see the practice of, of repeating this and the practice of having it bound on our forehead. I'm not saying go buy a box and tie it to your forehead. Uh, you don't need to do that right now. But you could remember this, right? You could memorize. You put it on your phone. You could put it, you know, on your desk, on a post-it note or something like that to remind you of these things. Repeating this to ourselves is a very good practice. Just like we repeat the Lord's Prayer or uh, the Great Commission, we can repeat the Great Commandment. And so we see that loving God with our whole being, it influences our behavior. It influences how we act and how we live and how we do things, and how we go about our day, right? Love moves us to action. And so if we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it will move us towards action, right? And, and love always does that. Love always moves us to action. Uh, Rick Warren, who's, who's a pastor uh, in, the, in the States of Saddleback Church, you may have heard of his book, The Purpose Driven Life, um, he has a great quote. It says, The best use of life is love. The best expression of love is time. And the best time to love is now. The best use of life is love. The best expression of love is time. And the best time to love is now. So the best expression of the way we love something is time. Is what do we give our time to? If we love something very, very much, we'll spend a lot of time with it. Maybe you love a certain musician or a certain band. You'll spend a lot of time listening to that band, or you'll go to the concerts or something like that. Uh, if, you, if you enjoy a really good author, someone who you love, the books that you love to read, you'll spend a lot of time reading those books, right? You, you spend a lot of time with things that you love. Sometimes love makes us do pretty irrational things, Right? Makes us do a lot of goofy things sometimes. Now, my wife, Cindy, who I've introduced you to, she and I, we met when we were teenagers. We met in high school. We went to the same high school together. And uh, I developed a crush for her uh, very, very quickly, very early on. Therefore, it was kind of this puppy love, like I was a little puppy that was chasing after this little girl, right? And this was before Facebook, where you couldn't go online and stalk somebody on Facebook. I actually did it in real life. I would stalk her at school. I'd, I'd go stand by her classroom and just let her walk by me, you know. Um, it's true. And so uh, I got her phone number. I got her phone number, which was kind of the only form of communication back then. This was way back in the, the 1900s. So I got, I got her phone number, and I would call her. And I call her, and, you know, she would just kind of casually talk. And I was so invested in, in this phone call, and she was like, whatever. And so she'd get another phone call, like call waiting, right? She'd get another phone call, and she'd put me on hold. And she'd come back and she'd say, hey, I have another call. You could either hold, or I'll call you back. And I was like, oh, just call me back. And she never called me back. 
ever. Every single time this happened, every single night, she'd get another phone call and she'd say, I'll just call you back. And she'd never call me back. And so one night, I remember she got a phone call and she said, hey, you can either hold or I'll call you back. I said, I'm going to hold this time. So I held on this phone. I held for 45 minutes on this phone while she was on the other line. Now, and I remember it was 45 minutes because I was watching TV and one whole TV show started and ended and then another one was halfway through. So I was timing this. And then the phone rang on my end, which meant the person on the other line had hung up and basically forgotten about me. So the phone rings and her mom answers the phone. And she goes, hello. And I said, is Cindy there? And she said, oh, she went to sleep. <laughs> so she had forgotten about me, right? But my, my whole point about that was that I had just spent 45 minutes showing this woman how much I love her, right? Spending, you know, my love, my time is my love for her. And she totally forgot, which is, you know, which we've more than made up for now. We joke about this all the time. Um, now it's her waiting for me to get off the phone. So it, it goes, <laughs> it's give and take in marriage. But this is how we spend time with things that we love, with people that we love, right? You spend a lot of time with people. And that's our prayer life with God and, and, and how we spend our devotion to God. It could be in, in worship music. It could be uh, singing praises to God. It could be praying to God. It could be reading the Bible. It's just what you do with your time is, is, is how you show love to God. Okay? And so we see that this is so important uh, both to the Israelites and now to the, to the Christians in the Bible. Jesus would often walk away and go off into the wilderness and spend time in prayer, spend time with God. So we saw that His love for God was very important. But what I want to really kind of focus on today uh, is, is in the Shema, in this uh, great commandment. We see that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the thing about those four things are interesting to me because heart, mind, and strength are kind of no-brainers in the sense. We, we understand those. A heart okay, is here and the mind is here and strength is all of our muscles. But the soul is that one that is kind of untouchable, right? It's the one thing that we can't really put our finger on because we can't put our finger on it, right? We can't figure out exactly what that soul is a lot of times. And it's hard to explain the soul because we can't see it. We just know that it exists. We can feel it, right? You can kind of feel the soul, but you can't really figure it out, okay? And so we tend to, uh, when we think about the soul, when we think about our soul, in popular culture, we tend to romanticize the soul. We tend to kind of overdo the soul, as the soul is, is very, very important. So it's a very romantic thing. And I just have some, some quotes that I just want to read um, about the soul that, that have been said by either celebrities or, or romantic uh, sort of things. Um, but here's one. It says, love is the harmony of two souls singing together. Aww. Guys, if you're, if you're paying attention, you might want to write some of these down for your, for your ladies. Uh, if I could have one wish, it would be just this. I could take you to my soul and show you all their love there is. Uh, aww. <laughs> Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. 
Oh, Judy Garland, who you probably know is Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, talking about a kiss that she had. She said, "'Twas not my lips you kissed, but my soul." Right? Such a deep thing. And uh, Ray Charles, who's a, a pretty famous musician who's passed away, but he was a great musician uh, in the 50s and 60s and, and forever. Uh, it says, um, this, is, this is his explanation. He says, what is soul? It's like electricity. We don't really know what it is, but it's a force that can light a room. The soul is a force that can light a room. Now, now Ray Charles was attributed as one of the pioneer musicians of what we call soul music. R&B or, or soul music, but it's the kind of music that just gets into your soul and just kind of makes you move, right? Makes you do something, makes, brings you to action. And there's other, other f- types of way we talk about the soul. There's soul music, there's soul food. If you're from the States at all, or maybe you've heard of this, but where I'm from in the South, in Louisiana and, and the United States, we have stuff called soul food. And soul food is just this like nitty gritty, grubby, greasy, fattening just food that just gets deep down all the way past your bones and into your soul. Like fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy and that sort of stuff. Just really good food, right? Um, when, you, when you put a lot of effort into something, you say you pour your heart and your soul into it. If you're keeping a secret, you say, I won't tell a soul. Uh, when you're sharing your whole life, you bear your soul to someone, right? Um, if someone has passed away, we say, God, may God rest his soul. If someone is just kind of out, kind of, uh, you know, wandering the world, they're a lost soul. There was a whole series of books called The Chicken Soup for the Soul. Maybe you read some of those books, these stories that kind of make you feel better, make you feel warm and fuzzy, right? If you're really in love with somebody or you found the one, they're called your soul mate, right? Your soul mate, which is a really deep expression, right? If you really think about it. That means this person, that's your one. That's the person who is your soulmate. And maybe some of you found your soulmate and then that relationship broke up. And that hurt so bad because you lost your soulmate, right? And then you found your other soulmate, okay? Um, and then you have this kind of ultimate bargaining chip in your life what you call, which is your soul, when, when you kind of give in to pressure or money or power or whatever, sometimes we call it selling your soul, right? Sometimes you sell your soul, or even people go so far as to say you sell your soul to the devil, right? Whenever maybe you make a deal for greed rather than purpose, right? You hear this a lot in music, musicians or, or actors or someone who is a, is a good musician, but they have sold out for popularity and money rather than creativity and that sort of thing. So the soul is this ultimate thing in our lives. And we show that it's, it's, our, it's our bargaining chip. It's our, it's our last resort. It's our trump card. It's our, it's our biggest thing that we have in our lives. And so what I want to share with you is just kind of three points today um, about our soul. And how we think about our soul and how important it is. The first thing we see is that we are uniquely gifted with a soul from God. God has given us the gift of our soul. We are uniquely gifted with a soul from God. Okay? Um, I think we have this passage, but we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when we're looking at creation and how everything was created and the world was created and It says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground 
And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being or a living soul. Some translations call it a living soul. Okay? Not there yet, but next that'll be the next one. But the dust of the ground. So we see that God has formed the man from the dust of the ground. Okay? He's coming from the earth. But then he breathes life into him from heaven. This heavenly breath of life. Okay? And that's where our soul comes from. We become a living soul from God. So we see that our, our body is from the earth, okay, or in a sense, this, this kind of bag of bones, muscle sort of thing. But the, the spark, the electricity that we get, the life that we get is from God, okay? Does that, does that make sense when we think about it those two ways, okay? So what we, when we see this, this breath of life coming from us, we see that it's so important that this is the unique gift that we have as, as human beings on the earth. We have this soul, Right? We have this soul that's very important that God has given us. And it keeps us searching and seeking for, for heavenly things. Now, when we think about those four things that Jesus talks about, the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength, okay? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. The thing about those four parts or those four aspects of us is that they are active. They are action aspects of us. Jesus doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your appendix, right? It's, it's right here, right, I think. So he doesn't say, love the Lord your God with your appendix, because the appendix doesn't do anything except explode and, and kill us. So be careful with your appendix. But it's, it's an inactive part of us. And when we see the heart, the heart is active. The heart uh, that we know uh, pumps blood to us, to, to our whole body, right? If our heart stops, we stop. Our heart is so important. And our heart is probably one of the things we take for granted every day because we don't even really think about it. We don't think about the, the work that it's doing for us all day long, all night long, nonstop, 24-7. Our mind is active. Our mind is constantly thinking and processing and, and shooting neurons from here to there and doing all sorts of things. And even when we're sleeping, our, our mind is working. Not only dreaming, but protecting. Our mind can wake us up if there's a noise and, and, and begin to put a plan in place to protect us. Our strength, of course, is an action sort of a thing. Our muscles, they do all the work for us. They, they help us walk. They help us move. They help us do all the things that we need to do all during the day. But what does the soul do? The soul, we can't really figure out. But when we think about this, reading in Genesis 2, that this breath of life comes, um, sometimes the soul is compared to the breath of life. In Scripture, we read that the soul is kind of personified as this breath of life, this breath that we have. Now, this is, this is not, I'm not saying by any means that the soul is our lungs or anything like that, or the soul is the air we breathe. I'm not saying that. But when you think about how authors and of, of Scripture look at the soul, they look at it as this force, this breath of life that we have. And therefore, it is active also, right? This electricity, this thing that we have inside of us is, is active. So Jesus is telling us to love God with everything that we have. Everything. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Every aspect of us 
we love God with everything because God has given us this. He's uniquely given us all of this. So, number one, we're uniquely gifted with, God, with a soul from God. Number two, our soul is valuable to God. Our soul is very, very valuable to God. Okay? Again, in, in Mark, the next verse up here, Mark 8, 34 through 38, I'll, I'll read the expanded uh, version. It says, Then he called a crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Wow. So Jesus is saying that if you are, if you are chasing after things, if you're chasing after the world and forfeit your soul, he says, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you. Right? If you're chasing after things for the world, if you're trying to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul, that's, that's not the right way to do it. Okay? Our soul is valuable to God. It comes back to this idea of selling our soul. Right? We've exchanged our soul. We're sold our soul in exchange for things that are unnecessary. Right? There's this idea that we have as, as humans a lot that the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, and, and we've, all, we've all experienced this. Sometimes literally with grass. <laughs> For me as an American, I miss grass. I miss a big open field that I could just go run around. I miss cutting grass in, in a lot of ways, which is funny. But we have so much concrete here in Hong Kong. And, and the grass is greener on the other side sometimes. But there's this idea of envy that we, that we sometimes struggle with as people, as human beings. We always look at the, the things that others have and think, oh, I wish I had that. Or I wish I could get that. Or we go to someone's flat and we think, oh, their flat is bigger than mine. Or we see someone has a nicer car. Or someone has a newer phone or a bigger phone or a smaller phone. Or... Uh, <laughs> a faster phone or, or whatever, a new computer, a new dress, some new shoes, something like that. And we think, well, my stuff is kind of old compared to their stuff. I want their stuff, you know? And, and there's this other thing that, that is kind of a new phenomenon, um, which is called Facebook depression, okay? You're, some of you are laughing because you probably already experienced it this past summer. Facebook depression is a real thing that therapists are actually working with people on. Okay, this is this is real or Facebook envy. But the idea is that you're you're kind of living your life and things are running smooth and you're on your way to work, your normal job, you know, you're working from nine AM to midnight or whatever it is in Hong Kong, and you're just kind of going about your daily routine and you pull up and open your phone and you check Facebook and this person just went to the Maldives and this just person just went to Phuket and they have a great tan and, and this person just bought a new house and this person just bought a new car. And you see all these people who you haven't talked to in 15 years and they're all on your Facebook feed buying new stuff and going different places and you know, going to the Taj Mahal and going to the Louvre in Paris and you know, all these things and all of a sudden you just look at your phone and you look at your computer screen and you think, my life's kind of boring. You know, I'm not doing anything. 
you know? And the, and the thing about Facebook is a lot of people put their best pictures on Facebook, of course. <laughs> your profile picture on any social network is the best picture you've ever taken in the history of your life until you get the next best picture that you've ever taken in the history of your life, and that becomes your profile picture. Right? You don't put your ugly, goofy pictures on Facebook. You don't put the awkward teenage photos on Facebook, right, when you were struggling with, with acne like I did, right? You, you, put on your, you put your best foot forward, and therefore, it looks like your life is perfect. And so everybody goes on Facebook, and they see everybody having a perfect life, and internally they're going, but I'm struggling, and now I'm depressed because everybody else has it all together. And so we compare ourselves all the time, we compare ourselves. Mike and I joke a lot about technology, and we're kind of sick of Apple coming out with new stuff every six months because it's like, well, now our stuff is junk because they got a new thing, you know? And some of you have experienced that. But it's all these toys and all these things and all these things that we, we chase after, this, this worldly stuff, and it leads to comparison, okay? It leads us to comparing ourselves. And comparison only really leads to two things. Comparison leads to pride or despair. If we compare ourselves to someone else and they have less than us or they're not as, as sharp as we are or, or they're not doing as well as we are, we think, oh, I'm better than them. Or if we compare ourselves to someone else and, and they have it all together and they have a great job and great family and everything's wonderful, then we feel kind of depressed because they're better than us. Right? And that's what happens when we begin comparing ourselves. We lose our soul. We forget that Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So someone making less money and, and then the, the billionaire are on equal playing field when it comes to God. Because all of us, have made mistakes. All of us have fallen short. So we see also in Romans 1.25, Paul writes, it says, they exchanged, their tr- they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So all of these things that we begin to chase after, we are, we are selling God short. right? We begin to worship things that instead of God, we worship the created rather than the creator. So we, our soul will always kind of want these other things and they'll never, ever be satisfied. Because as soon as we get the next thing, there's one more thing coming out later. Or as soon as we get the next promotion, there's always a higher ladder to reach for. As soon as we get this thing, we never get satisfied if this is the thing that we desire. If we think this is what our soul wants our soul will never, ever be satisfied. It's how addictions start. It's how drugs take over someone's life because they think, well, my soul needs this or I need this. And so they take this thing and, and it's great, but then it goes away so they want more and more and more and they become addicted, right? And it, and it becomes a vicious, vicious cycle. Um, Craig Groeschel, who's another pastor in, in the States, he talks, he, he's got a book called Soul Detox, And in his book, he just kind of sums up some of this stuff by saying, earth is not heaven. Earth isn't heaven, so don't focus on earth. Don't focus on these earthly things that we've all created anyway. 
Because it's not heavenly. It won't last forever. Earth is not heaven. Don't focus on earth. He goes on to say, it's not wrong to have things. It's wrong when your things have you. It's not wrong to have stuff. It's okay to have the new phone or the new car or the new flat or the new job or whatever or the new shoes, the new suit, the new dress. It's okay to have those things. But when they're controlling you, when they're controlling us, when they control our lives, that's not okay. When, when our next step or our next motivation in life is to do one more thing or to get one more thing, that's not okay, right? So we should focus on heaven. Since our soul comes from heaven, we should focus on heaven. We should focus on the things that, that God has in, plan, in, in store for us, that we are God's children, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We have that to look forward to. We have that promise from God. And so finally, just the third point, our deepest worship of God comes from the soul. Our deepest worship of God comes from our soul. So when we surrender ourselves to God, when we surrender everything, when we give everything, we surrender to God, and that's where our deepest worship comes from. Because God has given us the soul, we give it back. Right? We think about living a sacrifice, living a daily sacrifice. Um, we surrender everything. Okay, We surrender everything, and that shows our genuine love to God. We surrender it all. So one other quick story. When, when Cindy and I got married, again, this is back in the 1900s and the 90s, okay? Late 90s. Um, we, were, we were young. We, were, we didn't have very much money at all. We didn't have very much of anything, very much furniture. I think we had lawn chairs for, for a couch and stuff like that back in our apartment. But we didn't have very much. And I remember um, someone had given us a picnic set uh, for our wedding, kind of this fun little package that had like a, a blanket and all the you know, cups and plates and everything that you need to have a, just a makeshift picnic. You just pick up the pack and you go. And I remember I thought, I'm going to surprise Cindy one night after work. I'm going to get home, and I'm going to take her on like an evening picnic out in the park. I'm going to totally surprise her. I'm going to plan the whole thing, and I'm going to do it. So I get home from work, and I have a tie on because I was I was – I had to wear a tie back then. And I took my tie off and I tied it around her head. Okay, blindfolded her so she couldn't see anything. And I grabbed the picnic thing and then I had to take her out to the car. Now, the car that we had at the time um, was a 1978 Suburban. Okay, now I had a car, which is a regular car that I had gotten in a wreck and totaled it. And a friend of mine said, hey, you can use our truck or car, whatever you want to call it, it's a 1978 Suburban. It was huge, enormous, about the size of a bus. It was old. It was rusted. You could see the ground when you drove, right? It was so much rust. And we called it the Beast. This thing was loud, and it was disgusting. And so I took her out to the Beast, right? I'm, I'm walking her, and I have this picnic thing, and she's blindfolded. Okay, so I put her in the beast, and I get in, and I start it up, and it's rumbling through the, the, through the town. And so for food, since I didn't have any time to prepare anything, I was just like, well, I'm just going to get a pizza. So I, bring, I go into Pizza Hut. Okay, I ordered a pizza. I go into Pizza Hut. I park there right at the front. I run in to go get the pizza. She's blindfolded in the car, and I get the pizza, and I come out. And as I come out, I have this view of what it looks like. And it's this blindfolded woman sitting in this giant, enormous, rusted out, 
piece of junk car. And I sat there and I thought, people are probably thinking that I'm kidnapping this woman. <laughs> this is awful. I cannot believe I've done this to my wife. And she's just sitting there kind of like, where are we going? You know, just kind of super happy. And, and I'm thinking, that poor girl has no idea what it looks like. So then we, you know, we went and had the picnic and everything was fine. But I'll never forget that picture because that picture to me was her showing surrender to me. She had no clue where we were going. She had no clue where we were. She couldn't see anything. She had given everything up for me at that point, which was very lovely and very nice. But it was a picture of the surrender that she had to me as a husband that she trusted. And I think for us, it's also how we should, should surrender ourselves to God. I'm not, not blindfold ourselves, but how we should surrender to God on a daily basis. Just give Him everything and completely trust Him, right? Uh, you know, Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Okay? In Luke 1, 46-47, we see that when Mary found out about Jesus, when she found out that she was pregnant with Jesus, she sings a song. And she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She gives her entire soul immediately in worship to God for this newfound thing that she just discovered from this angel, right? She just found out that she is now pregnant with the Savior of the world, and she immediately gives her soul. She surrenders everything to God. And I think David uh, sums it up in Psalm 103 perfectly. He says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So David even skips the heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, Praise the Lord, all my soul, and my inmost being, head to toe, everything that I have, praise the Lord, praise his holy name. There's a song uh, that maybe you've sung here at this church, I'm not sure. It's called 10,000 Reasons, and it was written by a guy named Matt Redman. And Matt Redman wrote the song, and I always thought that the title was kind of weird, 10,000 Reasons. I never really understood that title. But he says, you know, he read Psalm 103, and he thought about this psalm and how David praises the Lord for everything, and then goes on to list all of the things that he praises God for. And so Matt Redman took that song and said, let's just make a song that praises God for everything that he's done for us. And then he says, the point behind the song is this. If you wake up one morning and you cannot think of a reason to bring God some kind of offering of thanks or praise, then you can be sure there's something wrong at your end of the pipeline and not His. We live beneath an unceasing flow of goodness, kindness, greatness, and holiness, and every day we're given reason after reason why Jesus is so completely and utterly worthy of our highest and best devotion. So wake up every morning and think, how has God blessed me? Even if it's a hard day, even if it's been a bad day, go to bed at night and think, what are the good things that happen? What are the things that I am just, uh, I, I, I take for granted on a daily basis? God, thank you that my heart did not stop beating today. God, thank you that air has filled up my lungs and that I can breathe. Thank you for the life that you've given me and the fact that I can wake up tomorrow and praise you again, right? So think about how your soul worships God, how our soul is so important to God that it comes from God where we don't focus on the earthly things, but we focus on Him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You so much for today. 
God, I thank you so much for this church and this, this body that you've brought together. God, I thank you for the community that is here uh, and the wonderful family, the wonderful sense of family that is here. And God, I praise you for um, how you've built us, how you've made us. Uh, you take the dust of the earth and formed our body, but God, you gave us the spark. You gave us the electricity that's in our lives, which is our soul. And so, God, I pray that as we think about our soul, as we think about how important it is to you, I pray that we would not focus on the earthly things, but that we'd focus on you, that we give our life of devotion to you, that we'd surrender all to you. And as we think about the greatest commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves, God, I pray that we remember that daily, that we bind it on our hearts, and that we take it with us wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us all rise for our closing song. Let's sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee.